Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. So, midday tomorrow, gatherings can increase to 100 people. Wahoo! Why the enthusiasm? Got a big party planned? No, actually, not even sure I know 99 people, come to think of it. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday, the 28th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, on my own in a room. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays we bring you the main headlines, some of the more unusual things about Level 2 and beyond, and then slow it down to look at something in particular. It really feels like we're in a whole different sphere from many places around the world, eh? Like we're on another planet altogether. But as a citizen of planet Earth, you can't help be staggered and wrench the pit of your gut about the, the toll this thing has taken around the world. Yeah, there's some amazing charts and data visualisations which sort of lay out the numbers. One of them I saw from Flourish was one of those bar chart races, and it tracks deaths from a variety of causes since the start of the year. You can see COVID coming out of nowhere, initially growing quite slowly, which we kind of knew, and then it accelerates rapidly in March and April. It hits the top of the death leaderboard late April. And then by the end of the race, I suppose you call it, on the 23rd of May, it's a clear leader with 344,000 deaths globally. Malaria is second biggest at that time with 256,000, which is why you've got people like the Gates Foundation pouring money into that particular problem, by the way. And then if you go down the list, because there are like a a dozen different causes in this chart, influenza's toll by the time they stop the clock on May the 23rd is 81,983. So hardly a small number, but it does make you think back to that time when people were saying COVID's not as bad as the flu. 81,000 for influenza, 344,000 for COVID. Later on the show, Professor Juliette Gerard, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, tells us what it's been like on the inside of the government's COVID response. She talks about what happens when scientists become more high-profile than all blacks and weighs in on the great WTF investigation. But first, here's what's happening. So, six days of zero cases in a row. As plenty of people have pointed out, in cricketing terms, that's a maiden over. And there are only eight active cases left in the country. The death toll, though, has gone up one to 22. So Eileen Hunter, she's aged 96, uh, she was a resident of St Margaret's, which is at the centre of a cluster in West Auckland, and she died at the weekend. Her death wasn't initially included in the COVID-19 toll because while she did have the virus in April and was taken to hospital, she had recovered and tested negative and had been transferred back to St Margaret's. Ashley Bloomfield says although COVID-19 wasn't the cause of death, it would be counted in the toll for consistency. And the US death toll has now passed the grim milestone of 100,000. Looks like there's a lot of pressure building, eh, to get this Trans-Tasman bubble opened. This new group called the Trans-Tasman Safe Border Group says it hopes to put a proposal to government by early June in time to get people travelling by the July school holidays. Now, there's a lot of top-level support for the idea. Remember, the Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters, has already been advocating strongly for the bubble to expand to Australia quicker than you can say, where the bloody hell are you? Remember when he was on our show, he said he'd like to see it open next week. So this group is being led by Auckland Airport and coordinated by the Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum. It says it includes health experts, airline, airport and board representatives from each country. And no doubt their work will be welcomed by the struggling tourism operators on both sides of the ditch. They're looking at things like how can you prove you're healthy before you travel? And what happens if you get symptoms a day or two before you fly? Will you get a refund? 
It's an interesting prospect, but there seems to be a lot of hoops to jump through. Remember, in Australia, there's restricted travel between states even, let alone across the Tasman. Of course, no one wants to open up the border willy-nilly and then see an outbreak because of some Australian importation of the disease. But there does seem to be a lot of momentum building. But it was interesting, listening to Ashley Bloomfield when he was asked about it at the 1pm press conference today. He seemed pretty careful and said, look... From a health perspective, we're watching the numbers. That's one thing. But it's about the pattern of cases too, he said. So you've got to think that cases like that one we talked about from Victoria the other day that was picked up in community testing and where officials were left baffled about where it came from, that will give Dr Bloomfield cause for concern before he books any school holiday trip to the GC. Email inbox. Yes, we've got this note from Richard Durham. Hi Eugene and Adam, I've got an idea for a new investigation. Where are the QR codes to use with my app? So let's see Richard, what's the acronym for that going to be? W-A-T-Q-R-C-T-U-W-M-Y. I'm not sure this is going to work. But anyway, let's see what Richard has to say. So in his letter he says he went to the mall to pick up a repair from Noel Leeming and couldn't find a QR code to scan on the door using the new government NZ COVID tracer. Richard writes, I was served by the assistant manager, so I asked her why they didn't have one. Quote, oh, we've stopped doing all that, she answered. So then, on his way out of the mall, Richard checked every shop he was passing, and of those, only one had a QR code. As Richard puts it, Countdown didn't have one, Specsavers didn't have one, none of the three two-door shops had it, nor did the countless beauticians and hairdressers. So this, Richard says, seems really concerning. We're level two now, and meeting lots of people, so contact tracing is going to be really hard without good information about where we've been. He wraps up by saying, I guess I'm a bit confused as to why the business community seem to be winding down their contact tracing support just when they should be ramping it up. Yeah, I've had a similar hit rate to Richard with the government's NZ COVID tracer. I've been to a cafe twice since Level 2. Both of them had QR codes, but neither of them were the ones that were compatible with the app. Yeah, pretty much exactly the same with me. It's Kind of confusing because, in fact, only some businesses were told you know, before the app came out that taking all customer contacts was compulsory. And that was places like cafes and restaurants. You know, you, some of them are just taking literally you write down your name and number. But then there's some totally confusing messaging on the Ministry of Health website where it says, quote, businesses should continue to keep appropriate contact tracing records for all customers regardless of whether or not they sign into the premises with NZ COVID Tracer. So does that mean that the app doesn't save you any time at all? You've got to do it on top of everything. Elsewhere, we've got this, quote, the more QR code posters we have in place, the more Kiwis will be able to keep track of where they've been with the app. This will speed up contact tracing and help stop any further spread of COVID-19. And that sounds sensible. That's why we're doing it in the first place. But this does seem to imply that every business should be putting up QR codes for the app to scan, whether or not you're one of those businesses who's obliged to collect phone numbers. So, I don't know. You know in the weeks since the app was launched, there have been 422,000 registrations, which is people who've downloaded it and then sent in their details. And there are 17,000 QR code posters created for businesses. How many actual businesses as opposed to posters? Don't know. 422,000 registrations. That sounds like a really high level in a short time compared to some countries. That's, that's a compliant population helping out. Yeah, so people are ready to go, but it just doesn't seem you can do much with it. It took a long time for the app to launch, so why weren't businesses encouraged to get QR codes sorted right from the get-go? 
What happened instead was that they all had to set up their own systems in the meantime, and now many seem reluctant or slow to double up and print out these government app-compatible posters. I agree with you, Richard. It just seems confusing and a bit of a shambles, if I'm honest. Right, Plague Playlist. Today, a song which is destined to turn into a Kiwi classic. This is from West Coast school principal and songwriter Shirley Serbin. She's already gone viral with the Sound of Music parody, which we played on Coronavirus NZ, no less, many months, years ago. But this one, rather than a parody, is an original, written to teach kids about social distancing. We're back at school, it's really cool to all be here together. We made it through, and I miss you, the country's getting better. But twist though in that she makes repeated use of a certain cringy word on purpose I might add. She noticed it in regular military education bulletins about the virus. Let's see if you can spot the word. You gotta stay at home and stay out of my moist breath zone. Okay Shirley Servant, principal of Lake Brunner School, the message is received loud and clear. Stay out of my moist breath zone. I will go sit on my When we interviewed the Prime Minister on the Coronavirus NZ podcast a few weeks back, Jacinda Ardern talked about the way information about this new disease from Wuhan percolated through the New Zealand government. And she said one of the key figures in that process was her chief science advisor, Professor Juliet Gerard. So today we've got her on the show. So we've been doing some research and now we know a little bit about her. She's British. She likes to travel. In fact, while she was at school in the UK, a careers counsellor suggested she might want to be an air hostess. Instead, her early jobs included working for McDonald's in LA and cooking on a prawn trawler, apparently. But she also did a bit of study, quite a lot really, and ended up with a PhD in biochemistry and an illustrious scientific career. So she's published papers with titles like Sub-Angstrong Structure of Collagen Model Peptide GPO-10 Shows a Hydrated Triple Helix with Pitch Variation and Two Proline ring confirmations, or, and I like this one, even better, selective laser sintering responses of keratin-based biopolymer composites. Sounds great. Anyway, her love of travel didn't get her onto the planes, but it did bring her to New Zealand, where she's now lived for over 20 years, and since 2018 she's been the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor. So, Professor Gerard, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, so, Jacinda Ardern told us that things escalated after you started to hear information through the networks that you're connected into internationally. Can you tell us a bit about those early conversations with your colleagues overseas? Yes. Um, I think the first message I got from a colleague overseas about the coronavirus was on January the 4th. So that was very soon after it had first been observed in Wuhan. And it was really, this is one to watch. So... I'm connected to my equivalent chief science advisors all around the world, as well as other scientists. And there was immediate concern within that network that this could turn into a global pandemic. And so we just started swapping notes, learning as much as we possibly could about the virus in case it did leave Wuhan and spread globally. Are there any particular convenings of, of these, these people after early January that you remember? The first thing that happened was um, the UK Chief Science Advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, organised a call for just a few of us. So there, I think there was about five of us on that first call just to see who was doing what research, who knew what, where the specialists were in each of the different aspects that we needed to understand. 
And then we kept in fairly informal contact through January and February. And then more formal conversations started to be convened through the White House. So um, Kelvin Drogmeyer, he is director of the Office of Technology Science Policy in the White House. And they obviously have a, a large office and infrastructure to pull together databases and to provide a forum to share information internationally. And so every week or fortnight, there was a teleconference call with an ever-increasing number of chief science advisors just talking about what we knew about tests, what we knew about vaccines, what we knew about particular measures to stop the spread, what was working, what wasn't working. And so we could feed all that in in real time. Not to get too political too early in the interview, but on these calls, were you able to sense any kind of, I don't know, despair and hair pulling and distraught eyes in the American scientists? No, we stuck very much to the science and avoided the politics where we could. But it was interesting to note um, how the sequence evolved, I guess. So at the beginning, we were very much all in the same boat. And then we very quickly diverged in terms of the situations in our local country. And so even now, in Europe, saying the disease is under control means there's a space for you in the ICU. Whereas in Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, it means we don't have many cases. Um, so very different political landscapes. But the important thing for that network is to focus on the science, what's going to work, what's not going to work, and which, which tests can we use. The tests have taken up a large amount of airtime. In New Zealand specifically, as the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, what advice have you offered to whom? And you know, what are the lines of communication? It's been really interesting to watch that evolve. So under business as usual, I would meet with the PM maybe once a month in person and we would chat through all the proactive work we're doing. So the piece of work we did last year was on plastics and we'd check in once a month, um, just make sure that she was fully aware of where the project was tracking. And I'd also check in with Minister Sage and key decision makers in that case in MFE. Of course, for a pandemic, everything accelerated very quickly. And so there wasn't time to write formal pieces of advice. The advice was changing all the time. So it became much more rapid, much more verbal. Um, and I relied quite heavily on Professor Ian Town, who's the chief science advisor to the Ministry of Health. So he and I would split things up and have lots of conversations, triangulate, swap notes. He advises within the ministry. So Caroline McElnay and Ashley Bloomfield, I advised the PM. Um, and oftentimes we'd have those conversations ahead so that we were all on the same page. We'd had the free and frank discussion. We'd pulled in all the different bits of information from overseas. Obviously, I'm not a health expert. I'm a biochemist, um, but I can bring in a wider network and the international connections. And then that would get filtered to the PM often in a quick conversation. Uh, I've seen a photo of you wearing an Ashley Bloomfield T-shirt. Uh, so two questions. Have you been dealing with him often during the, the past couple of months? And if so, were you ever wearing that T-shirt at the time? I did not wear the T-shirt in the room with Ashley Bloomfield. Um, <laughs> but we, we did check in occasionally. So he, he's the official channel for health advice. And I'm an independent advisor. So we don't work closely together. But especially for the key decisions we checked in. And, and had a good conversation just to make sure nobody was missing anything. But my main connection's been in town. Uh, you're a biochemist who's specialised in proteins rather than diseases, and obviously we've all become armchair experts in viruses and vaccines and epidemiology and so on. But 
how much more knowledgeable are you on viruses and epidemiology and all that than you were three months ago? Uh, a lot more. So in, in some ways, I was lucky to be a biochemist for this one because I do understand viruses and how they replicate. So my baseline knowledge was pretty good compared to, say, um, a volcano erupting. So the Vakari White Island experience, I'm a long way from volcano expertise. So there I very much relied on my networks, but you do learn quickly. Um, but yes, I would say my specialist subject is now COVID-19. So I've lived and breathed it ever since January. From a science communication point of view, this has been tricky because in a way there's been a lot of science on the hop, a lot of unfolding information, changing information, which is tricky communicating that to the public. How do you think we've done? I think we've done pretty well. It's a huge challenge. Um, so in many parts of the advice, it differed almost day to day. So there were officials saying, but that's not what you said on Tuesday and it was only Friday. What we knew about the virus changed very rapidly. We've been very fortunate to have some very good science communicators and I've kept in constant contact with them, not just about the specifics and the details, but also on how to explain things clearly. So Michael Baker, Susie Wiles, Sean Handy, Michelle Dickinson, Aisha Beryl, they've all been fantastic at really clearly explaining what we do know and, more importantly, what we don't know. So we're not being too dogmatic, but we're being as certain as we can be and just sharing the information in a completely transparent way. And do you think the public has responded well to that? Has it, has it gone well from your point of view? I think so. I mean, um, if you look at the surveys, most people seem to be happy with the government response and how it went. And there's a some preliminary data suggesting that trust in scientists went up during the pandemic. I mean, I think people looked to science for some answers and and got some clarity. One example would be around the introduction of the level system, which was put together quite quickly, um, inspired by the Singapore example. And it was fascinating to watch the PM deliver the system and announce we're at level two on the Saturday and by the Monday, there was a huge cry across all sectors for an upgrade to level four, essentially. So people had understood the levels, what they meant, what we were going to do, and were already asking for a shift. Um, so it tells you something about the urgency of the decisions, but also that it was well communicated, not just by the scientists, but also by Ashley and the PM. One area where there has been a lot of sort of conflicting advice and, and a lot of confusion amongst the public is, is masks and the wearing of masks. Do you, do you have a view on that? And do you think, where does the science lie? That's one of the trickiest things to communicate, I think. So there's, there's two reasons to wear a mask. One is to protect yourself and the other is to protect others. So if you're in a hospital setting, you need to protect yourself. Say, if you're a nurse or a doctor, wearing a top-of-the-range mask fitted perfectly and changed often is important. If you're a member of the public on a bus, it's unlikely that the mask is going to help you personally much. But if everyone wears a mask, it's going to help the whole bus because it basically catches your cough, essentially. If you wear a mask poorly and take it off incorrectly, you end up with hands covered in virus that can contaminate surfaces and might do more harm than good. If everyone was to wear it properly, it would make a difference to protect the population. Um, where do I land? If I was getting on a crowded train in New York, I would wear a mask. If I'm catching a bus in central Auckland with the caseload we've got at the moment, I think it's very marginal. 
And so the cost-benefit analysis is hugely context-dependent. And it's just, the science says maybe, and, and that's the hardest thing to communicate. Mm. And that's the thing, isn't it? Science sometimes does just say maybe. Yeah. One, one another area that's been troubling me is pangolins. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I hadn't really heard of them before this outbreak. And then suddenly they're being thrust into the middle of it and then they're out of it and then they're in of it and it seems to go back and forth. You know, one science paper will come out saying one thing and another science paper will come out saying another thing. When Eugene says troubling him, he actually means deeply obsessed. I'm, I'm obsessed. It's like a true crime show where I can't figure out who the bad guy is. It's funny you should say that because Ellen, who works in my office, has a pangolin dress. And shortly before the pangolin was implicated in the sequence of events, I remember asking her, what's that on your dress? And she said, it's a pangolin. So you should talk to her. She's very passionate about pangolin. (laughs) They're one of the world's most trafficked animals and people who care about wildlife care about them deeply. Yeah, yeah. The advice that you pass on, to the Prime Minister is just that, it's it's advice. There's nothing requiring her to act on that advice. Have there been moments in this crisis where you've passed on something you think is important, but it's been ignored or, or maybe not responded to in the way that you think it should be? No, um, I've been very lucky in that sense. So the Prime Minister was always very keen to get every detail. She's someone who likes to understand the data and how it all fits together. Often the science advice is just that, as you say, it's the science advice and other things come in which might conflict with that. And then it's her job to synthesise that and make a decision. And the classic example would be people coming home and whether they were quarantined or whether they were asked to self-isolate. Clearly there, the science is really clear. You don't want them to talk to anybody or, or mingle with anybody. But how you actually do that politically when thousands of people are coming in through the border and you need to sort out the logistics and the rights issues and all those sorts of things. It's a very complex mixture, but the science is really clear. And she was always very keen to make sure that the decisions were informed by all the evidence. On that quarantine situation in those early days, it was just much more left up to people as opposed to the situation we've got now. Was that a mistake? Was there, Should there have been restrictions put in place right from the get-go? Well, I don't think it was a mistake. It was just what was logistically possible. So you need somewhere to put people. So if you think back to um, when we brought people in from Wuhan all that time ago and we we put them in a very specialised facility, that's easy to do with a group that size. But if you try and do that with thousands of people coming home, you you quickly run out of places to put them. I step back from the, the logistical details. That's not my part of the equation. So, And I think Ashley says um, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we're sitting here at zero cases for several days in a row. I mean, we did it. So obviously what we did was good enough to get rid of the immediate first wave. For a while there, it looked like we had dueling scientists almost in New Zealand we, when the Plan B group publicly were questioning the lockdown and, and said we were overreacting. What did you make of that episode? I was actually more surprised at the degree of consensus at the beginning So when we went into lockdown, I was waiting for different voices to pop up and they didn't. So there was huge consensus that we locked down at that time. And science generally works by people disagreeing. So um, it's a very um, unfriendly way to decide things in some ways. It's not very kind. So people put up a theory and then other people knock it down. And so that, that's how science works and it's healthy and the, the theories that stand up tend to survive. 
So there might be other ways to make decisions, but the scientific tradition is very much that you debate hard. Whether it's helpful to debate hard publicly in the middle of a pandemic is, is another point. But I don't think there was much disagreement on the actual science from the Plan B people. It was really about values and policy decisions. So that they were advocating that we have a policy like the Swedes. I think the Swedish epidemiologists look at the same data with the same intelligence as all the other epidemiologists. And what's different is that they put more responsibility on individuals to do the right thing. And they value individual freedoms ahead of maybe optimal public health outcomes. Um, and you see that on the chief science advisor calls. I mean, the advice is, is very similar. There's not, nobody's debating anything about the virus. The policy options are very different and they're informed by values um, and how you optimize different factors between individuals and communities. So I think the debate is healthy. Perhaps it could have been framed more constructively, but in the middle of a pandemic, you don't really have time to do that. And I think it's good that all the voices came forward. During this pandemic, scientists have had a higher profile than the All Blacks even, uh, which is great. But but that also does come with, with some unwanted and unwelcome attention and, and, and criticism. How's your inbox and your Twitter mentions? Um, my Twitter mentions have been pretty good. My inbox is always quite full of um, quite fruity messages. Um, so lots of people became experts very quickly. And I have to say the vast majority of my emails were really constructive and they tended to be scientists who'd had a good idea. Um, it may have been that 57 other people had had the same idea, but it's still better to have all the ideas than none of the ideas. And amongst them were some really incredibly helpful leads. Just going back to that meeting that was convened really early on, you're saying right at the beginning of January by the uh, British Science Advisor. So this sort of confirms what we already know, which is that, that British scientists were totally aware of the importance of responding, I guess, hard and early to a potential pandemic. But then the UK headed down a totally different path and didn't start lockdowns until way after us with results that from here look pretty catastrophic. Do you have any insight into how Britain's chief science advisor feels about that? So Patrick's British, so he, he doesn't tend to share his feelings, more the science. So we've kept it strictly to the science. And to be fair to the British, they were having those conversations a long time ahead of us. So we had the luxury of time. We saw what happened in Italy. We saw what was happening in the UK. And we saw what was happening in places like Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong. And we were able to see that the people that had a plan based around SARS were doing much better than the ones who had a plan based around flu. So we could quickly change our plan. And I think Ashley described it as um, rather than moving through the phases of our pandemic plan to instead do them all at once. So rather than keep it out, then stamp it out, we kept keeping it out and stamping it out. And we didn't move to the manage it phase. The UK did move to the manage it phase. And along with nearly all the other countries that tried that, found it was really too hard to manage. Um, so we learned from their experience. Given that that's where you grew up, have you had people you know who have been ill or, or died in the UK? Absolutely. So my mother is still living in the UK. 
Her main home is actually in a retirement village. Obviously, those are very high-risk places. But fortunately, she has a caravan by the sea. So I encouraged her to go there really early on, and she's still there. Um, but a very different picture in Britain, just the death numbers coming in all the time. Um, she told me a story about going for her daily walk and finding a large refrigerated unit had appeared. Um, and it was a portable morgue. I mean, it's a very different situation in Britain. So, yeah, it was quite confronting to hear those personal stories alongside the official science advice. Um, you've got a batch on Great Barrier. Were you ever t- tempted to bolt for it yourself and lock down, you know, well away from the, the throng? I was. Um, I was obviously going to be working hard. My, my connectivity is good there because there's a nice 4G tower opposite the batch. So I, I could have done lockdown there. But I thought it was actually irresponsible because at that stage, we weren't really clear how much community transmission there was in Auckland. And there were no cases on Great Barrier Island. And the food supply there is not the best. So if they lose the supply to the shops, then there's people who are really struggling to find something to eat. They didn't have the big countdown systems that we had. So I didn't think it was right to go there. And I was much better set up to work from my apartment in Auckland. So I did that. Speaking of supply lines and so on, we noticed the other day on your Twitter account that you met with Plant and Food and the Foundation of Arable Research and the Arable Food Industry Council, and that you specifically talked about flower supply, among other things. Now, I'm not sure if you've been following our investigative journalism project, WTF, What's Where's the Flower, where we delved into this very pressing issue, one of the most important of the whole crisis, it seems. But the thing is, we understand in your career, you actually became an expert in croissants. It's a long time since I was publishing papers on croissants, but um, you've obviously done your homework. But what we learned about croissants was that if you freeze the pastry dough, as people do, particularly in hotel buffets, when you rebake them, they tend to collapse. So most people have, have had a disappointing croissant, and that's because the pastry sheets have weak proteins. And what we worked on was ways to strengthen the pastry sheets so they survived freezing so that you could have big puffy croissants. That, that was a long time ago. So you must have been beside yourself when the flour supply chain broke down. Yeah, it, it was really striking that the flour ran out. And so I did, I did check in with them to see what our flour supply was like and where it came from. You probably know more about it than I do because you've been studying it hard. <laughs> and, and the most important question on this topic is, were you a lockdown baker yourself? I did do a little bit of baking, yes. Any specialities? Uh, banana cake, I think, was probably my, my number one. Now that we've uh, finally got to the WTF, which, of course, was the whole reason we got you on the show, thank you very much for explaining everything to us, and we appreciate you talking to us. Oh, thanks very much. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 28th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you, Juliet Gerard, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Hartevelt and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms, you know that already. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. That's Thursday. We'll be back on Tuesday. Pa Lim. Pa Lim.